Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. It's hard to believe that our third virtual season is winding down and that we will soon be holding public events again. I do want to take a moment as we start thinking again about the joys of in-person conversations to say that we won't be returning to business as usual. Business as usual has left too many feeling marginalized and excluded, so I do want to assure you that rather than returning to normal, we are committed to building back better. And that will include hybrid models that allow people to participate from a safe distance. I'm profoundly hopeful that as we move forward as a community, we'll ensure that everyone is able to participate and to feel valued, seen, and respected. If we've learned anything during this pandemic, I do hope the lesson includes a deeper sense of our interconnectivity and the need to push for equity. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. It's important to recognize our obligation as settlers on the land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and to acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism continues to inflict. I want to thank you for listening and for keeping that sense of community going, for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. My guest today is Todd Babiak. He's the author of a number of acclaimed books, including The Empress of Idaho and Come Barbarians, which was a Globe and Mail book of the year and a number one bestseller. He also wrote The Garneau Block, which was a national bestseller, long listed for the Giller Prize and won the City of Edmonton Book Prize, and Toby, a man, which won the Alberta Book Award. Todd spoke with me about his new novel, The Spirits Up, part social satire, part contemporary ghost story with a hint of a Christmas carol, It tells the story of a family haunted by the specter of financial and social ruin and the cruelties of modern teenage life. Thank you so much for for being with us today to talk about your remarkable new book, The Spirits Up. And uh, I, I know you're on the other side of the world, but right here, the days are getting very, very short. It's starting to get colder. The Here in Ottawa, the leaves are off the trees. And so it's a perfect time for, for a Christmas story. Um, and I guess I wanted to start with how how would you describe The Spirits Up? There's so much going on here. How would you describe the story? Well, it's funny. As you talk about how it feels in Ottawa toward mid-November, uh, the story is trying to sum up and bottle up that feeling a little bit. It's a Christmas story uh, with ghosts and uh, with all the contemporary concerns that I think we're all living through. Uh, it's just about a regular family going through an extraordinary time at Christmas with ghosts. <laughs> now, I guess I want to start probably, the, the book is about so many things. Obviously, it's it's uh, in part um, Benedict, the, the, one of the main characters, is an inventor who is working on clean energy, so so you're clearly looking at the environment, at the world, at success, at entrepreneurialism. But I think really at the core of the story is about a family. It's two parents and two children. And I'm wondering, can you just quickly uh, maybe introduce us uh, to Karen and, and Benedict and, and tell us a little bit about how I'm really curious where those those two characters came from for you, like how, what your way in and, and what about them you found so interesting. I grew up in Alberta. I spent a lot of time in other places like Montreal, lived in France for a while. I've worked all over, lived in Australia, but Alberta is really at the heart probably of all the tension that I grew up with. Karen, Benedict's wife, 
she grew up wealthy in Calgary uh, with an oil in an oil family, and it all came crashing down when she was in her late teens. And when she was seeking something for the next part of her life from Vancouver, where one moves after things go badly in Alberta, uh, she met Benedict, this brilliant young man who had a crazy bright future. He was considered by everyone to be the billionaire among them. And so they married. And as things progress in their lives, it becomes quite clear that Benedict is not going to reach his potential and that Karen and all she imagined for herself, uh, it's starting to spiral into the mediocrity and fear and even poverty that she ended up growing up with herself. They have two daughters, one, uh, a girl who really wants to use social media and other means to be popular. She, she longs to be that special girl in school and struggles against it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, she, she wonders about her body a lot as teen, teens do these days. And then her sister, Charlotte, and Charlotte is uh, on the spectrum in some fashion, and she's a little like her dad. She's a bit brilliant, uh, but struggles socially with success. And all of them are, are living in, in a house in a really stressful time toward Christmas when, when something happens. Uh, there's an attack in their yard, and it seems to spread into the house and uh, to manifest itself as as ghosts as the Christmas season progresses. And I think that's where a lot of the tension and the adventure happens in the spirits up. Before we get into the kind of the ghost of it and, and um, some of the sort of page turning qualities, I, I want to circle back a little bit on Karen and Benedict. And I guess, you know, you, you described Karen um, a little bit there. And one of the lines that you use in the book that just completely, uh, thought captured so perfectly. I mean, Karen is playing with the Karen archetype, right? She, she's self-aware enough to be aware that her name is is now being used as a kind of a slur. And, and she does embody a lot of that Karen. But the line that I just thought was so gorgeous was she felt their net worth in her viscera, describing a, uh, um, her sense of, of looking for security through, um, I guess, uh, a sense of, of financial status. Um, and I'm wondering, as you were spending time with her, you have to like your characters, right? Did, did you find it difficult with her being so, um, well, she's just so consumed with with how other people see her. Uh, and I guess in, in a lot of ways, um, Poppy follows in her, in, in her footsteps in the sense that they're both really extrinsic. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, yeah, how, how you got to know them and, and how much of both of those characters are really defined by how other people see them. I think so much of us all are defined by that at our worst, certainly, uh, sometimes at our best, if there are good instincts there. But I see a lot of, a lot of myself in Karen. You know, the, the worst of me is Karen, for sure. Uh, like Karen, I suppose I grew up in, well, I didn't have wealth in my family, but I certainly felt the sting of, of feeling like we're, we're lesser beings in Alberta. And we don't fit in. Uh, I wish someday I could I could succeed. I wish someday people would see me as special. That's my teenage self, I suppose. But how did that manifest itself in your adulthood? And and then I think a lot of us, and we've seen it, I think, in politics in Canada and the U.S., sort of the suburban lifestyle, especially where you are absolutely defined by 
by your financial success, by how clever you've been, by how you've succeeded or what you've been lucky about. And I think it's really easy to fall into that. What else are you? And I think the people around Karen, the people she deals with, similar. That's all they are. And and so I have real sympathy for that, actually. I mean, you said you have to like these people. I liked Karen more and more, honestly, because uh, I like flawed people. And she's certainly honest with herself. Uh, it is a third-person close novel, so it gets into her head a little bit. There's, of course, the Karen she presents to her, to her husband and to her friends. And then there's the real Karen. And I suppose it's the real Karen I like. Uh, the the fact that she can be so honest and searching and and how she's responding to deep failure at the beginning of the novel i i find that i can certainly empathize if i if i can't sympathize hmm. and and poppy is clearly uh cut from the same mold in many ways um or and certainly wants to emulate her mother and and yet so Poppy describes her sister Charlotte as deeply frustratingly kind. So I'm just curious if you want to talk a little bit about how these two kids could grow up in the same environment with the same input and yet have such diametrically opposed responses to the world and what the world wants of them. Well, everyone sees Poppy as being just the kindest, sweetest 13-year-old girl. And it's Poppy and her secret heart. That's what that's what makes her reflect in, in sort of an awkward way. She's, she's not good to her sister. She's embarrassed of her sister. Uh, she is not succeeding in the social structure of her junior high school the way she'd like, and she doesn't react to that well. Uh, she's jealous. She, she feels feelings that, are, that she knows because she reads teen novels and she watches the movies. She knows uh, these, are not, these are not noble uh, virtuous feelings, but she feels them hard, and uh, she wants everything that she sees on social media, especially. And I think there's just so much. I have, I do have daughters, and they don't like the fact that I'm writing about teen girls, actually. But uh, I see what they're going through, especially with uh, with Instagram and other social media, and it is awful uh, what they're having to deal with. And when there is a there's an active daily minute by minute version of what you ought to be. And you're just not that. I think it it does create some tension in a 13 year old's heart. So I think that's what she's mostly dealing with. But and then having this brilliant, kind sister, who yeah doesn't succeed in in the social life of the school, and then most frustratingly in some ways doesn't care. That that drives her crazy. I think she wishes she didn't have to care, but she can't help herself. She does. She does want to be popular. She does want to be seen as successful. She does want her dad to succeed. She's embarrassed and humiliated because her dad is rather publicly failing. And I, I think that really hurts. And, you know, one of the things that, that through the story, you do really see that Poppy is, there's a superficiality in some ways to, to her desire to be seen as exceptional for, for people to see her dad. But there's also a, a real, a genuine affection she has. It's not just, she doesn't want her dad to succeed just to succeed extrinsically. She also just wants to feel safe. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, one of the, the core elements of this book seems to be about safety, the notion that, that there is a haunting in their home that for various reasons, each of them have have ghosts, uh, uh, have, have elements of their lives that they're not wanting to examine. And it sort of invades their home. I'm wondering, 
Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to say in Spirits Up about our sense of security and safety and and home? I'm so glad you said all that, Sean, because, I mean, I didn't want to make that obvious. I didn't want to write the line summing that up. But in some ways, that is what the novel is all about, uh, safety, security, and belief. And how can we how can we use faith and belief uh, and sacrifice to get ourselves into something safer, into something better, um, better version of ourselves? So I, I suppose, especially going through the last 18 months or two years we've been going through, that is a central anxiety that I just feel around us. And when I was inspired to write the book in some ways, I just so love, and this is, this is silly, but I, I love Christmas stories. I love a Christmas carol with its ghosts and its hard lessons for a flawed person. And, and even, you know, the romantic comedies, the Charlie Brown, all of this stuff that we immerse ourselves in for a month or so, if we allow ourselves to be immersed in it. Uh, I, I thought that's a nice counter or at least a tension when all you want to do is feel safe and all you see around yourself is the alternative. You can't, you can't believe yourself into safety, security, happiness, and that's financial, that's social, uh, it's cultural, uh, everything that's going on around them. And of course, it's happening during a, a pandemic. So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot that's, that's driving their behavior in the book. Yeah, you, uh, another line that, that I had to jot down was you referred to the banal anarchy of family life, <laughs> which I thought, oh my God, yeah. Now, uh, the pan- this is a, a very contemporary uh, story in many ways, and, and even more contemporary because it, the the pandemic reality is the reality they're living with in the story as well. And, and I'm wondering, at what point in the writing of this book did uh, you know where were you in in the story when the pandemic hit? And, and you know how much of this was written was taken up after the start of the pandemic, and how much was was before? I suppose it was probably between draft three and draft four when the pandemic started to get serious, and so I thought. I can either ignore that or I can incorporate it. And I didn't want to make it a novel about a pandemic. I don't even name what it is. It's just a a little bit of that banal reality that they're all living through. It's just the way we live now. And one thing I did really want to do is have this novel feel really contemporary of this moment. Not, Not so you just have to read it this year, but if you're reading it now or looking back on it, there's something about what happened in 2020 or 2021 that that they're living through. And I wanted to be really culturally specific about it. So I thought, oh, let's, I have to put the pandemic in. And I, I was already bored of listening to news about the pandemic. I, I constantly, we're all living through it and um, it's both scary and awful. And I didn't want to certainly make that a problem anyone in the novel had to solve. It's just what they're living with. It's, you know, we're, we're wearing masks. You know, we're not supposed to gather in a certain way and you feel guilty when you do, when you break the rules. So- well, yeah. yeah, and it does seem to lean in, though, in, in a lot of ways to the the, the themes of, of of the book. It, and, you know, one of the characters says, uh, if this can happen, anything can happen. Now, that was in, you know, about financial stuff, I think. But, but that's true as well of the changing reality around us. And I'm wondering, as an Albertan, you know, you, the characters you're writing about here, um, they're facing pushback um, the community in some ways, as much as it loves a success story and loves wealth, doesn't really want them to succeed because it's clean energy, right? Which is which is sort of diametrically opposed to how most people, most of their neighbors earn their living. And I'm wondering if you can, 
were, how, how much were you trying to tackle that notion of, of personal prosperity and, and the larger cost of that personal prosperity and our unwillingness to kind of ask too many questions about how we earned our money or how our parents earned their money or, or that kind of thing? Right. And there is a section and you get to learn about Karen's past. It's, it's something that's been in her family a long time. Her, her grandparents were involved in, in Sweden's version of the Nazi party, et cetera. And uh, there were mysteries around money in her own family. Financial inequality is something that you just feel in Alberta in a, in a different way with each generation. When the boom is on, everyone's doing well, or at least 70%, and then some people 30% are doing really poorly, and you can really feel it and see it. And, but also in Alberta, because it's also new, and it feels like we're entitled to it, there's a sense that everyone in Alberta, when oil's doing well, everyone in Alberta is rich. And to, to go against the status quo, to move against the current, is perhaps uniquely across Canada, uh, feels like a betrayal. And, and so if you're living in Alberta and, and you are a bit of a critic, it, it can feel strange. It can feel really hard. And it can feel hard to be poor in Alberta uh, because suddenly all, all around you, uh, you know that people you grew, went to high school with who maybe left school before finishing, they're now making $250,000 a year, working really hard, working really hard. Um, but they are, they're the royalty in a sense of, of Alberta. And where do you fit in as someone working for a not-for-profit or something? It's just, it's a really funny, interesting culture, but it's, it's rich. And so I wanted Benedict, you know, his clean energy machine, if it were to succeed, and, it's, and it has a plan, it has a strategy behind it, it would make coal and natural gas and eventually fossil fuel cars totally unnecessary. In fact, the expansion of, of things like the oil sands would be completely unnecessary. It would have to start declining very quickly because of consumer demand if Benedict were to quickly succeed with his, with his clean energy machine. So that is, uh, is an extreme version of what you feel in Alberta if you're trying to turn in a direction that doesn't feel like the general direction of all Albertans and what we're entitled to, uh, the Alberta the Alberta spirit. Well, I'm wondering, you know, so, so when we first meet Karen, um, she's dealing with a, a real sense of, of her husband's impending business failure. And, and as you mentioned, that ties in with, with some very painful parts of her family history. And she's sort of thrown herself into what I think she describes as the hard work of self-improvement, um, yoga and, and eating well and, and organic snacks. And, and yet it does seem that she's been spending an awful lot of time improving herself without ever trying to get to know herself. I'm wondering how much, how much of that self-improvement, I mean, as you're living through the boom and bust cycle of, of a, an extractive economy, um, you know, are, are you really trying to get, dig into what that is like as a human being to, to, you know, what does that tell you? If she's there, she is working on her, you know, her downward dog, getting the better posture, getting, trying to be more healthy in her body. And she's also, feeling totally disconnected from her children, from her husband, from, from the things that we think of as mattering. Um, yeah, so I think there's a question in there. <laughs> I think, yeah. That feeling that you have growing up there, especially where, and Karen does this, and actually I still do it from time to time, check the price of a barrel of West, West Texas Intermediate 
oil. Because there's there's almost a lottery quality to living in Alberta where commodity prices determine how the place feels, how wealthy and successful and happy your neighbors are. And when it's going up, it just feels fantastic. When it's going down, uh, it feels terrible. And so I think you do go into these cycles of, well, I can, I can fix it. I can do something about it. There's something within my control. But deep down, you're just hoping, God, there has to be a spike in oil prices here. We can get back to 100. Imagine, imagine being back to 120. Those were the dream years. And we'll all do better. And I'll get an amazing, in her case, you know, maybe she can get an amazing job as a designer for, for an oil company. So I do think that there's a, there's a strange, wonderful, interesting culture in Alberta around that, that single industry uh, that determines our, our mental health. Well, there's also an interesting psychology, right, around a kind of a rugged individualism. Um, and I think it's interesting that you're describing, you know, sort of the effects and the impacts of this rugged individualism, the idea that we're, you know, that they're self-made people, they work hard, there's a... And yet, on the other hand, success or failure is really collective <laughs> and outside of the hands of any individual. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how good your your extraction process is. If, if global oil... If there's too much of it, you, you, there's no value in what you're doing, right? Like so, I mean, how diff- that must be such a strange space to inhabit. This feeling of it's all up to you. It's the individual. It's hard work, and yet there's really nothing the individual can do to affect success or failure. I never felt, you know, that rugged individualism. Uh, what Aretha Van Herk calls the maverick quality of Alberta. I never actually saw that or felt that happening in real life. It's just a thing we. We tell ourselves in Alberta. In fact, it is there's a collectivist feeling in Alberta more than anything, more than anywhere else in Canada, where uh, absolutely is because you're all on team oil. There is, and the political party uh, of my entire life in Alberta, apart from a couple of years, but I was mostly checked out of Alberta by then, was the Progressive Conservative Party, which was the party of oil. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just the way it was, and. Uh, I remember I worked as a newspaper journalist, and if I were to write a, a column criticizing uh, what was happening in that industry, for example, I'd be called out by my colleagues, by people around me as as a traitor. And that's not rugged individualism. That is conformity. Uh, I think that that is Alberta at its at its worst, and in some ways most in- interesting. I think we we give ourselves a pat on the back and say we achieved this because of our ideas and our rugged individualism even though the majority of the, of the economic activity around us has very little to do with, uh, with our own initiative. And, and most of what we've achieved has been through government investment and <laughs> subsidies, et cetera. So. I feel like you're really, you're, you're playing with so many big ideas and all in, in a kind of within the, this very f- comfortable kind of rhythm of a Christmas carol and a Christmas story and, and also through the kind of a lens of, of, of a family where, where the, everyone is, is relatable entirely in the sense that either we're going to, I think anyone who's reading this is going to feel a lot in common with, with at least one, but probably all four of the characters are certainly no people that are like that. And I, I'm wondering, were each of the characters, did they feel like stand-ins for you for something? I mean, you mentioned Charlotte is, um, she's on the spectrum clearly more as, as her dad, um, Poppy is dealing with body issues, uh, you know, like I, I'm just wondering how, how, how you were 
I don't know, as, as these characters were coming to life for you, how much were they telling you things about themselves and how much were you, did you know already what they had to do for the story? Do you know what I'm trying to get at there? Yeah, I think so, Sean. I think the what you're trying to do when you're designing a story that you want to live with for a few years is make sure there's conflict between everyone, that they're distinct, that they have their own uh, hopes and desires and, and conflicts and uh, all of the, I suppose, idiosyncratic elements that make us who we are. And then how can you expand that out to make sure there's enough drama between them? And then with the outside world, with broader, say, Edmonton or Alberta or North America or the world in order to, you know, to give the thing life because they're they're crashing against it no matter what. And so I, I suppose as I did draft after draft, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't falling into cliche or stereotype and that these people did feel like hum, human living, breathing human beings. And like any writer, probably there are elements of me in every single one of them. Uh, that's for sure. There's there's a bit of a, because it is a, a Christmas story, you know, there's a bit of a super, supernatural quality to the thing, but mostly I just wanted it to be culturally, deeply culturally specific about, um, about Alberta and people growing up and, and trying to survive in urban Alberta, which is not, as much as we're talking about how different Alberta is, which is not unlike really anywhere across North America, it's all the same. The specific issues are a little bit different, but the, the weight that people are living under in, in central Edmonton, really, it's no different from central Ottawa or central Dayton, Ohio. It's all the same. It's just there are some peculiarities. So I suppose the people, there are some people, of course, that I, that I admire and find interesting that I borrow from constantly, like all writers do. And, and I imagine that some people who would read this would go, what are you doing here, Todd? And uh, that's just something I've, you, know, you have to deal with when you're stealing from people constantly as a writer, that's for sure. Um, but you know, that, all of that game of a consistency of feeling and then inconsistency of feeling that is, that is believable that you're trying to do when you're creating, doing the trick of creating a human being on the page. That's just the magic of, of this. And it's why I get up really early in the mornings before my day job to, to spend some time on this little impossible mission of, of entertaining people with a story. Well, I'm, of the four characters, who was the easiest for you to slip into and, and who was the, the most uncomfortable for you to slip into? If you're saying you're, 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 there's elements of I you. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, that's Karen's both, I think. Karen, okay. Karen's the easiest to feel. I can feel like Karen, that's for sure. And and all of the, the tension that, that Karen feels from her past and her, and her present, her searching quality, the way she just makes mistake after mistake after mistake, I totally feel that. <laughs> I'm just uh, bumbling through life and and trying to do the right thing constantly and messing up and being selfish and bad and and then trying to seek forgiveness and uh, and trying to get through the rest of the day and loving your family, but also doing this thing that you know would hurt them. All these things that we that we go through all the time that that is. Comfortable and uncomfortable all at once. She's the easiest to slip into, but she's the hard. She makes me, she makes me feel the hardest. That's for sure. Um, the poppy is just a heartbreaker because the what I what I see in the lives of a thirteen year old or a fifteen year old today, especially girls with uh, with social media, I just think is we will look back on this era as 
as criminal. It's terrible what's happening. And, and I have real sympathy for that. And I, I, I see it every day. My own daughters are, are really great and I can talk to them about it, but it's just, they show me it's terrible. So you said we're going to look back on this time and see it as criminal. So that implies that you feel we're going to find a way through this, uh, is specifically thinking of the social media side of things, the, the way that we're constantly holding ourselves up. I, I'm just, can you talk a little bit about what you're exploring there? I, you know, obviously you've got daughters at home and, and this is a reality that we're all seeing, but, but what is it that's happening? It's a kind of advertising of the self that is going on all the time, right? Where, where there's, they're commodifying, we're commodifying our lives and selling it to our neighbors as if, look how great my life is. And, and you want to just talk a little bit about the, the, what you're seeing as, and what you're trying to explore with, you know, with Poppy in the, in the story. And Karen gets into this too, but you know, this, the switch we've all gone through from the internet as a place to meet to the internet as a place of performance. It's just a way to sort of package ourselves up and present something to the world and and just say if i can just i think with karen no the the, i feel like the performance is it's at the galas it's at the the luncheons it's you know she's it's clearly performative and and clearly uh about how the world sees you but but for the for the younger characters it's all happening on the phone and it's with them all the time like karen can leave the gala or choose not to go to the gala but you don't get that uh, it doesn't seem that poppy has a choice right she she feels profoundly connected to what's happening on her phone no, that's it. Yeah, Karen performs when she's with other people. Poppy has to perform 24 hours a day. And even turning her phone off at night is difficult because it means she stopped performing. And I think that's what the algorithms are doing to us, uh, especially to, to younger people, digital natives who grew up with this. And that's all I mean. It's just an unregulated, ugly machine that, that is feeding on itself. And uh, it will. that's what I mean about looking back on it in a few years. It I imagine it'll be a little bit like looking back on tobacco when when we see that the companies knew what they were doing. They knew absolutely what they were doing. They did it anyway because it was so profitable. And at some point, uh, there there's going to be, have to be some regulation and and some real understanding of the health impacts. So I suppose that's it. And and you're right. That's exactly it. And I was I was thinking about when I was writing the book. Karen's performance is different from Poppy's performance, but it really is an era of performance. Mm. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you mentioned tobacco, and, and it seems to me, though, that, that central thesis of, of corporations, organizations lying to us to sell us things that we don't need that are, in fact, bad to us, that has not changed, right? That, that is continuing, and, and so fundamental, pretty powerful forces here, right, in terms of, in terms of uh, how we put food on the table and the fact that for some of us, what, what we do is, is not honorable. That's it. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think the setting something at Christmas time narrows the field a little bit. I don't know. I don't really know if it feels different in June than it does on December, on December 15th. But uh, that's the, that's the world I wanted to create in, in the book where it's all distilled down to these choices we're making and how it's, how it's making us and others feel. And is there a way out? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so you also, I mean, this is a book very, it's about family but and safety and also very much about faith. And faith plays into it in a number of ways. You've got uh, um, a religious family that, that maybe uh, isn't as kind to their kid as they could be. You've got, uh, but also I, I would just argue that there's a kind of a faith in Benedict that the whole family has and that the world has. I just want, what, what were you trying to tease out when you were looking at faith in all these different ways uh, in, in this story? Sure. I think Benedict, especially, he grew up in a, 
in an ultra Christian family and his parents, they didn't, they didn't grow up with it themselves. They, when he was a child, he went through a medical crisis and his parents through that became believers, uh, became solid sort of uh, new Christian believers. And he grew up inside that and he desperately wanted to believe, but his brain didn't work that way. He was not able to be a believer the way his parents were. And so he struggled with it and, you know, he moved into science and he was cer he's certainly a believer in science, but then over the course of the novel, and I think we can talk about the first bit of the novel, the, uh, the aspects that I think drive him toward belief are, can I encourage others to believe or can I use the tools that my parents taught me, introduced me to in order to get others to believe something I need them to believe otherwise this won't succeed. And so you're right. He has to create a way for others to believe in something. Otherwise his family is going to, to suffer. So he, he's going into the realm of the sacred, I guess, uh, his parents would say. So I found that, that fun to, to play with. Certainly Karen is lucky enough not to have to live with uh, any faith whatsoever. Uh, that said, when, when things, strange things start to happen in your house and you can, and you can see it and feel it, it does, it does force you to struggle to think, well, what, what's actually happening and what can happen in the world? So she, she struggles, struggles with belief and, and faith and spirituality as well over the course of the novel. So I really had certainly fun with that. And then, of course, the religious um, aspect of, of this time of year. Uh, certainly comes into play, but I didn't. I didn't get too deeply into that. One of the ways, I guess, that that you tackle faith in here seems to me to be a faith in storytelling itself. In some ways, Benedict is a storyteller, right? And and so you're you're showing a tremendous amount of faith in that, and that carries over from the page to your your working life as well. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about your day job uh, and how storytelling? impacts that part of your life. Right. I think, well, I think we all know this, that, you know, storytelling narrative is at the heart of not only these novels we love and movies and video games, but religions too, and corporations and cities and states and countries, anything we invest in, we're investing in the story. Uh, whether the, the facts of the matter are true or not, we're investing in the story. Politics is, is really all about storytelling. And so in about uh, 20, 2011, I left journalism, well, earlier than that, but I left journalism and, and co-founded a company called Story Engine to help clients use this. And so we, we basically tapped into the, the neurological power of, of narrative and helped organizations. It ended up being mostly cities, universities, sometimes things like banks uh, who, who don't really differentiate in any way apart from interest rates. How can they use narrative to to bring their strategies to life and to create a strong relationship with their with their customers or with their citizens to inspire action? And and so yeah, I ended up traveling the world doing this strange work. And one of my clients was was Tasmania, which like everywhere else wants talented people and tourists and wants we want you to buy Tasmanian things like Blunston boots. Uh, they they want people to invest. They want international students to come here and study, and they want community action. So, one of the things I did here is you know, we worked on creating, listening to people, and creating, distilling this story of this place. And then when they they launched an organization and actually paid attention to me and listened to me and what I gave them, 
I thought, oh, what if I, what if I had an actual job for a while? And so here I am bringing this to life, working with, with Tasmanians to tell this the story of this place and then use it to drive action in our customers and in each other. Oh, that's so interesting. And, and so you've been, though, as all of the world, but in Australia has also been under a, a strict lockdown. So what's it been like trying to think of a place and enticing people to a place uh, for these last 18 months when the one thing we're all supposed to do is just stay home? I mean, how, how has that been? Uh, trying to project yourself beyond the lockdowns and, and back into a world where we're traveling in some way again. I've, I've had a weird, weird privilege the last 18 months, I have to say. We, from the very beginning, and this is, was part of my job in speaking to my boss, the premier of the state, we did look at what if we were to not only have a hard lockdown to get to zero if we could, but then the water surrounding Tasmania, what if we thought of it as a moat? What if we just, we just stopped? We didn't, let, we didn't let people in. What would that do? And we, I've been back at work. I've been living an entirely normal life, I have to say, apart from one mini weekend lockdown since July, actually late June 2020. I d- I've not lived through what you've lived through. And what's been a, lucky for us is we've been able to, to build all the stuff we've needed to, to drive demand for Tasmania, whether it's to live in this safe place where our neighbors protect one another and make those sacrifices, or I want to buy something and be a part of that or study there, whatever it might be. So it's really, actually, this is awful, but it's helped my work. Uh, Stopping, slowing down, thinking about, okay, who are we and what's our strategy? Uh, What's the story we're telling and how can we make it as consistent and unifying as we can? It's actually worked. And, uh, you know, we're opening our border for the first time now to to travel on the 15th of December. And so we'll see what happens then. So just, I want to just finish off with this, this notion of you spend much of your day uh, using storytelling and words to improve uh, community cohesion and to make things better for, for your community there in, in Tasmania. Who is your client when you're writing Spirits Up? Who's your client and what's, what's the brief? What's, your, what's the mission statement? I suppose in, an, in a novel, I, I love being able to use fiction. I love being able to delight people to follow the, the rules that I've learned as a reader, I suppose, uh, to make that connection with, with readers. I'm, I, I so love, and you know, Sean, I'm not uh, an internationally best-selling blockbuster novelist, but I just love when I get an email or I hear from a reader or someone lets me know that you know, they stayed up late reading my book and they have these ideas about the characters. They know what they look like. They know what they feel like. They can taste the food. They can hear the music. Uh, the, the beautiful trick and the great privilege of being able to write a novel and have that connection with a reader is just something so special uh, that I, I just will never stop doing it. I love it. Wow, what a perfect place to pause our conversation. And I'm wondering, is there a section that you could share with us uh, from the book, something that would give people a a sense of the language here? Sure. And I thought maybe we'd go back to Karen. Karen Schoblad. Yeah, she, Karen is, um, she's, as we've said, uh, she's a very contemporary woman who happens to be named Karen at the worst possible time to be named Karen. And so I, I thought rather than have to set it up too much, I'll just maybe read from the, the first time we get to meet her. Karen Schoblad had never once purchased a magazine at the supermarket checkout. 
When she was a child, her mother had whispered judgments about people who bought trashy magazines with the rest of their poison. Sugary drinks, potato chips, bulk baked donuts, white bread, and jumbo packs of cheap ground meat. These people never looked around to see if anyone watched them and whispered judgments. They just chose with perfect freedom. Karen had always admired that freedom, even as she denied it to herself and did everything in her power to teach her daughters to pass on their grandmother's wisdom. It was the difference between success and failure, mental health and misery, designer jeans and pajama bottoms. Then her husband had attacked a woman in the backyard on Halloween night, the perfect culmination of months and months of horror. All the rules she had followed, all the sacrifices and healthy choices she had made, they were ultimately in preparation for a test that would not come. Karen had never been a believer, but if she'd ever held a kernel of maybe, just maybe, in her heart for the Nordic god of her ancestors, it had recently departed. It turned out no one answered prayers. There was no spiritual protection, no reward. She'd been so, so good, so self-denying and careful, waiting for everything good people deserve, while the naughty and the shameless bought private islands and second homes in the desert and potato chips. Someday, and maybe soon, she would just die with a breathing tube down her throat, having never eaten a supermarket donut. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's great. Well, Todd, thank you so much. Congratulations on the Spirits Up. Thanks for taking time to, to speak with us. And, and um, you know, best of luck as Tasmania reopens to the world. I, I hope uh, lowering the drawbridge around the moat is a good thing. And uh, I'd love to visit some one of these days. Ah, uh, well, we'd welcome you, of course, Sean. I'll take you around and show you the, the magic of this place. And thank you so much for taking this time and for reading the novel and for your interest, for your great questions. This has been a really fun conversation. That was my conversation with Todd Babiak about his new book, The Spirits Up. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, but I know wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>